Bible studies. Uh, we're going to get right into the Word tonight. Now, I may do something a little bit different than I normally do. I might involve you by maybe asking a question or two and just get you involved. Uh, we'll see where the Spirit leads us. But, uh, but let's pray, and then we'll get right into it, all right? Father, we thank you for this night that you've given to us, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to share your word. We ask that you open up our hearts to receive your instructions, Lord God. We pray for your word, Lord God, that not that it needs prayer because we know that there's power in your word. And we pray, Father God, that that word will penetrate our deepest spirit, Lord God, and begin to do a mighty work in us. Lord, bring revelation, knowledge, and understanding. We thank you for the Holy Spirit tonight to minister to us, speak to us right where we are. And Lord, revealing things that we need to know and understand concerning your will. And Lord, we thank you for your presence here tonight, and we give you all the glory and praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Let me start off by sharing a story about Johnny the Painter. Have you ever heard of Johnny the Painter? No? All right, well, Johnny the Painter is a man who makes a living painting houses. And Johnny was very big on cutting corners so that he can make more of a profit. And so there was this church that was looking to have somebody paint their church building, which is a wooden building. And so they reached out to Johnny, and Johnny the painter submitted the lowest bid, and he got the job. So he gets the job. He starts right away the very next day. Now, Johnny, what he always does in every job is he thins his latex paint with water to make it stretch. Okay? So what he did, so he started the job, and one day he was at the scaffold, the job almost done, until all of a sudden he hears this loud cloudburst, this thunder. And soon after, it began to rain. And it was pouring down cats and dogs. And the torrential rain was washing off the thin paint from the side of the building. And along with the torrential rain was this strong wind. And the strong wind was so strong that it knocked uh, Johnny the painter off the scaffold. And he landed on the church cemetery surrounded by puddles of thin paint. Now, Johnny the painter interpreted that as a warning from heaven. So he quickly got on his knees and he prayed to God. He says, oh God, please forgive me. What should I do? And all of a sudden he hears this loud voice from heaven. And the voice says to him, repaint and thin no more. It's just a little humor to lead into my message tonight. But tonight I want to talk to you about not repainting, but repenting. Now I shared this message several years ago, but I really felt uh, a strong impression to share this tonight. And so... One of the reasons why I feel we need to share this is because it's a very important subject. It's a major theme in the Bible, and it's also a requirement for salvation and restoration. And so when we look at the word repentance in the Greek, it literally means to change one's mind or direction. It also means to think differently or to reconsider. It is a change of heart and a change of direction which also involves a, a determination and a commitment to stop sinning and to sin no more in the future. 
A good example of that is over in the book of Ezekiel and we, in chapter 18. So let's look there because it gives us a good example of what repentance is. So Ezekiel 18 and verse 27, it says this. Again, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he committed and does what is lawful and right, he, pres he preserves himself alive. Now in verse 28. Because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed, he shall surely live and not die. Let me read that last verse, verse 28 in the New Living Translation. It says this, they will live because they thought it over and decided to turn from their sins. Such people will not die. Now, we see here the repentance includes or involves both the turning away from sin and a turning to God. In other words, when you realize that the direction that you've been going, the way you've been thinking, the way you've been walking, the way you've been acting, the way you've been living, and the direction that you've been taking is wrong, and you need to do an about face. You need to do a 180 degree turn towards God, not 85 degree, not 45 degree, not even a 360 degree. It is a complete turnaround towards God. And what I want you to know is, is that it, it, you can say that repentance is like being on a highway. You're going south and you realize that you need to be going north. Repentance is not thinking about changing directions. It is about changing directions. And I don't want to get ahead of myself, but, but repentance is realizing that you're going the wrong direction and then you decide to get off the next exit. You cross over and you get onto the right road on the way home. That is what repentance is. So the process of repentance is you're on the right road, you're 20 miles out of the way, and then you decide to change direction. So what do you do? What do you do? anybody you get off the next exit right you get off the next exit now when you finally made your turn and repentance is accomplished you still find yourself 20 miles out of the way this is where so many Christians become discouraged because they realize they're going in the wrong direction 5 10 15 or even 25 years and this is where many folks get stuck. Because when they realize that they've been so far out of the way, that they might as well continue going in that same wrong direction. Well, let me say this to you this evening. Your journey back to God is always shorter than your journey away from God. So please understand that. See, what so many Christians do is that when they commit a sin and they realize that they've messed up, they rather, you know, days, weeks, sometimes months will go by without them doing a thing. But I would suggest to you tonight that rather than waiting, when you recognize that you're heading in the wrong direction, why continue in that direction when God wants us to go the other direction? So let me encourage you tonight. So repentance is a call that demands a complete 
radical and total change. How many of you believe that? Go to Psalms 119. Look at verse 59. Because I, I believe that God is calling many of us tonight to repent from whatever it is that put distance between you and God. And it doesn't matter how far the distance may be, God is calling us to come home and return to him. In Psalm 119 and verse 59, this is what it says. I pondered the direction of my life. The King James Version says, I thought about my ways and I turned to follow your laws. The psalmist was saying, I pondered the direction of my life and I realized I'm heading in the wrong direction. So I'm going to turn around and get back in the right direction and turn to his laws or his testimony. Now, this is, again, where I say where a lot of Christians, when they come to realize that they've sinned, they ponder the direction of their lives and realize they're going in the wrong direction. But rather than making a change, they allow days, weeks, and months to go by and still heading in that same wrong direction. But look what the psalmist says in verse 60. He says this, I will hurry without delay to obey your commands. So the moment you ponder the direction of your life, and you realize you're heading in the wrong direction, don't delay, but quickly get back on the right road. Quickly get off that next exit and get back on the right road in the right direction. Amen? Amen. So, once a person repents, how do we know that it's genuine? Anybody? When a person repents, how do we know it's genuine? Come on, I'm giving you an opportunity to, to get involved here. Because they feel that God has forgiven them and, and uh, brought them back. So you're saying that because they feel that they've been forgiven and they're asked to come back? Is that what you're saying? Anybody else? Only God knows. Only God knows. John? I think you see a change. Change? You see a change in the Who said evidence? Okay, change evidence. Okay, let's look at Matthew chapter 13 or chapter 3. And let's look at verses 1 and 2. Look at Matthew's account of John the Baptist in his ministry. Beginning in verse 1, it says this. In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, verse 2, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, I want you to look to verse 7. Skip down to verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, it is not known whether the Sadducees and Pharisees came to be baptized or came to observe the baptism. But many of these Pharisees and Sadducees were known for being pompous, self-righteous, and hypocrites. John realized this and knew this, and so he calls them out. He denounces them, and then he challenges them with these words. Look at verse 8. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. The New Living Translation says it like this. Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. So when you say evidence and change, that's how we know that a person truly repented because of the change in their lives. They changed the direction for the better. They changed their attitude for the better. So I'll tell, let me tell you what repentance is not. 
Some people think that repentance is feeling remorseful and regretful. Now, these emotions are normally involved when somebody does something wrong. There will be feelings of regret. There will be feelings of remorse. There will be feelings of sorrow and guilt, even self-pity. But that is not what repentance is. Understand that repentance is not about, it's not about crying. It's about changing. Let me say that again. Repentance is not when you cry. Repentance is when you change. Repentance is much deeper than just feelings of remorse and feelings of regret. That's all part of it, but there has to follow change. There has to be a, a, a personal change and transformation in one's life. And it doesn't make a difference how you feel. It does not make a difference how you feel. What is essential, what is important is what you do, is that you do something. A good example of that is over in Matthew chapter 27. Where we read the story of Judas Iscariot, who himself was one of Jesus' disciples. He came to a place of remorse. If you go with me to verse 3 of Matthew 27, it says this. Then Judas, Jesus' betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. Now, the chief priests and elders made an alliance or a deal with Judas. They gave him 30 pieces of silver to identify who Jesus was. And when he did that, they arrested Jesus and then dragged him into prison and condemned him to death. Now, whether Judas Iscariot knew what the, the, the intentions of the Pharisees and, and the religious leaders were, but the question, but, I mean, not the question, but the point here is this. He made a deal with him for 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. He betrayed Jesus, but then he realized that Jesus was condemned to death. And that was because, and that's how he became remorseful, because he realized that he did something wrong. Now, look at what he says over in verse 4. He says this, I have sinned, he declared, for I have betrayed an innocent man. And of course, the response of the religious leaders was this, what do we care? That's your problem. But instead of him feeling, even though he's feeling remorseful, instead of the remorse leading him to repentance, it led him to do this. Look at verse 5. Then Judas threw the silver coins down in the temple and went and hanged himself. Repentance is not when you feel remorseful or regretful. Repentance is when you change. That is so important to know that. You will feel grief. You will feel remorse. You will feel guilty. And you, it will, you probably even feel self-pity. You, you know, you sit around feeling sorry for yourself for something you've done wrong. And you still, how many of you have felt sorrowful because you've sinned? Okay, now we know that everybody sins in this house. <laughs> now, but we all, at one point or another, fallen into sin. And it doesn't feel good, does it? It causes one to feel sorrowful and remorseful and, re and regretful. But let's not stay there. Because that should lead us to do what is right. To get up the next exit and get in the right direction. So there are three aspects to repentance. There is first conviction. 
That's when the Holy Ghost begins to reveal the areas in which where you've sinned. He not only reveals it, but then he brings conviction of, the, of your wrongdoings. Repentance is always a result of coming to a place where you know you've done wrong and knowing where you went wrong. Then comes con, uh, contrition. Contrition is when you begin to feel uh, remorseful and regretful. That's when you start having those feelings of guilt and, 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 and sorrow. <clears throat> In Joel chapter 2 and verse 12, and you don't need to turn there, and that's not even in my notes uh, or in my uh, references. But God calls his people to repent when he says to his people, turn to me with all of your heart. And he says, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And he says, uh, and with, he says, verse 13 says, so rend your heart and not your garments and return to the Lord your God. Now the word rend in the Hebrew means to tear or to tear to pieces. So he's saying, tear your heart and not your garments. Now in the Old Testament, when, when, uh, whenever they felt anguish or great grief, it was common for them to, to, to cry out and tear off their cloak or tear off their garments. God is not looking for an outward sign of repentance. What God is looking for first is the condition of your heart. Are you hearing me this evening? You see, we get into the habit of going through the motions when we repent. But God is looking for what's in the heart. You know, David made, uh, reminds us in Psalm 51 and verse 7 when he says that the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. When we sin, we need to understand that we've sinned against God. That should cause us to, to, to feel broken. That should cause us to feel sorrowful. Because we offended the, a holy God. That should cause us to have a broken and contrite spirit. That should have our hearts be torn to pieces. Because we sin against God. That is what true contrition is. It's when your heart is torn like garment. And it often leads to humility and confession. So that's the second aspect. You have conviction and you have contrition. But this, the third aspect, which is the most important aspect, is the commitment to act. You can feel contrition. You can feel broken. You can feel all of that. But unless it leads to a change, repentance is not complete. It's not accomplished. So real repentance is complete when, when you wholeheartedly turn from your ways and move towards the right direction towards God. Now, here are some examples of what true repentance is. Go to Luke chapter 3 and look at verses 8 and 9. We saw Matthew's account of John the Baptist's ministry. Now we're going to look at Luke's account. He talks about how John the Baptist preaches this very strong message on repentance and how he was calling people to repent and be baptized. But he was also giving them stern warning to change and show proof of their repentance. In verse 8, it says, Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. It says, Don't just say to each other, We're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing, for I tell you that God can create children of Abraham from these very uh, stones. Look at verse 9. Even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees, 
Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. Now, it's a very stern warning to the multitudes of people that came to be baptized. He said the judgment is at hand. And those who do not show proof of their change of direction in their lives, God's going to bring down judgment upon them. Now, this caused the people to be convicted of, of, of this message. They were convicted in their hearts, and they all cried out and says, what shall we do then? And then Luke, I mean, uh, John tells them the things that they need to do. Now, the first group of people that came and asked, what must we do, were tax collectors. Now, tax collectors were the most hated group because what they did was they, they, they were hired by the Roman government to collect taxes, and there was a certain amount of taxes that were required from everybody. So what they would do is they would uh, tax the people the, 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 the exact amount that they were to, uh, to tax for the government, but then they would overtax them. So what they do is they take the certain percentage and give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and then they'll keep the rest for themselves. And many of these tax collectors were wealthy because of this. They were thieves, and they exploited their own people. So they were the most hated. And so these tax collectors came to be, to re, to, to be baptized, and they asked, what should we do? And so John says this in verse 13 of Luke chapter 3. Collect no more taxes than the government requires. All right? If you're doing drugs, and you know you shouldn't be doing drugs, and you know you got to repent, and God says, and you say to God, Lord, what do I do? God's going to tell you, stop doing drugs. If you're committing adultery, and you know you're doing wrong, and you say, Lord, what must I do? He's going to tell you, stop committing adultery. What is he asking us to do? To change your ways, change the direction that you're going. And get back in the right direction, heading towards God. Remember, it's a commitment and, and a, a determination to stop sinning and to not sin in the future. That is what repenting is. You remember the story of Zacchaeus, who himself was a tax collector. And when Jesus was coming down the road, he wanted to see Jesus. But because it was a great multitude, he couldn't see because he was short. So he would climb up a tree to get a better view. And when Jesus saw him, Jesus says, come down. And he says, today I'm going to your house. And it was at that moment that Zacchaeus repented. And this is what he says in Luke 19 and verse 8. He said, then, then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone from by false accusation, I restore fourfold. So he was making a decision to repent of his sins. He knew he was wrong. He knew that what he was doing was not right. And he decided to make a decision to turn the other direction. He was even willing to make restitution for all of those people that he cheated and robbed. And so if you go back to Luke chapter 3, then we see another group of people coming and asking, what must we do? And verse 14 the group says, what should we do? And then ask some of the soldiers. And then John replied, don't extort money or make false accusations, but be content with your pay. In other words, repentance is a call to action. It's not a word that we think about. It's not a word that we share. 
is something that we do. It's a call to action of changing the way you live, the way you act, and the way you think. It demands proof of complete, radical, and total change. Now, we all know the wonderful and beautiful story of the prodigal son. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And you all know the story, how the, the, you know, the father had two sons, the older and the younger. There was a younger one that was giving him the most problem. And the younger one decided, okay, I want my inheritance now because I want to go on and live my own life. I want to do my own thing. So the father gives him his inheritance and he goes off and he makes some awful, foolish, terrible decisions. To the point where he found himself in great poverty, homeless, and destitute. Now, what happens next in this story demonstrates the very principles of godly repentance. If you go to Luke chapter 15 and look at verse 17. One of the most important statements in this verse was when the, the prodigal son says to himself, But when he came to himself... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? One of the most important statements that you could ever make when you come to the realization that you've sinned is that you come to yourself. Remember what Psalm 119 and 59 says when he says, I pondered the direction of my life, and I turned to your laws. Well, the prodigal son pondered the direction of his life. He realized he was going in the wrong direction. He looked at his situation and his circumstances, and he says, I got to change. I've messed up. Now, what he didn't do was he didn't stay in that place of remorse and regret. He didn't stay in self-pity. But the scripture goes on to say that his repentance led him to realize that he was going in the wrong direction, and he decided to do something about it. Uh, look at verse 18. He says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your higher servants. So he pondered the direction of his life. He realized he was going in the wrong direction. And he made a decision to get off the next exit and go back home. And even in that, in that pondering, he felt remorse and regret, realizing he made a huge mistake. He didn't blame anybody else. He didn't point fingers. He didn't blame the government. He didn't blame the, the economy for the situation that he in. He realized that he alone messed up because of his own foolish decisions. And he decided to do something about it. Repentance is not about how you feel. It's about making a decision to turn back to God. Now look at verse 20. He finally made the decision. He made a commitment to act. And he said this. And he arose and came to his father. And we'll stop right there. His repentance became complete when he turned away from his old ways and returned back to the father. Repentance is mandatory if fellowship with the father. You know, it, uh, let me say that again. Repentance is mandatory if fellowship with the Father is to be restored. It's so necessary because, again, we think about, okay, to repent means to go back the other way, turn towards the Father, but it also means being restored to the Father. And again, this beautiful story paints that picture, and we see all three aspects of repentance here. We see the conviction, 
We see the contrition and we see the commitment to act. Repentance begins by recognizing that you're going the wrong way just like the prodigal son. And you came to yourself, you pondered the direction of your life and made the decision to turn back to the Father. Now, here's why repentance is so important. We, as I mentioned to you earlier, repentance is a the major theme in the Bible. It's also a requirement for salvation and restoration. But repentance is also far more important than prosperity, healing, or message of the, the, the gifts of the Spirit. It's far more important than that. There are too many folks who want to come to church and, and get a boost for the week rather than listening to the whole complete gospel. But repentance is a requirement for, simple, for even simple people in order to approach a holy God. And I think that we're missing this point that when we sin, we're sinning against a holy God, a righteous God. And to approach God, we need to make sure that our heart is right. We need to make sure that the condition of our heart is turned towards God. And again, that's so important. We understand also that the importance of repentance is that it's, it's the very first message of the gospel in the New Testament. It was the very first message of John the Baptist when he preached repentance and baptized people through that repentance. It is also one of the, most, the very first messages that's recorded from the lips of Jesus during his earlier ministries. Peter also went after he received the promise of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, where there were thousands of Jews that come from all over to celebrate that day. It was a great opportunity for the Holy Spirit to move him to, to speak and preach a very powerful message. And the message was so powerful that it convicted the hearts of the people that were there. And they all cried out to Peter and says, what should we do? And Peter says, repent. And on that day, 3,000 souls were saved and added to the kingdom. Even the Apostle Paul, we find that throughout his ministry, he preached repentance to both Gentiles as well as the Jews. In Acts 26 and verse 20, he says this, I preached first those to, in Damascus, then I preached to those in Jerusalem and throughout all Judea and also to the Gentiles that all must repent of their sins and turn to God. And prove that they've changed by the good things that they do. So we see that repentance, not just a secondary message to the gospel. It is the gospel message. There is no heaven, there is no gospel, and there is no, no Christianity without repentance. How many agree with that? Even Jesus considered repentance so important that he commissioned his disciples to go and preach repentance and remission of sins to all nations so again we're seeing how important repentance is even to jesus and even to us because we're all also have that same great commission to go and preach the gospel and to preach repentance to all the nations that's why repentance is such a vital subject to talk about one of the things also that's important about repentance is that it's god's idea god is the one who came up with that idea it was his idea right from the beginning simply because of his grace, his love, and his mercy towards us. In Genesis chapter 6, you ever wonder why it took Noah so long to build the ark? And you remember the story in Genesis 6 where God saw the earth and he saw the people were filled with, with corruption, violence, and evil. And he was sorry 
And he grieved in his heart that these people were so, so evil. And it never got better. It just got worse. So he decided that he was going to wipe the whole earth and bring judgment upon them. The only ones that were safe was Noah and his family. And so he approached Noah and he said, Noah, I want you to build an ark and prepare for this judgment that's coming. Now, according to Jewish tradition, they say that it took Noah 120 years to build the ark. Now, God must have known that it would take Noah that long when he told him to build the ark. Now, look at what verse Peter says in chapter 3 and verse 20. Who formerly, keep in mind that Peter was talking about this, uh, what was going on in Genesis chapter 6 during the days of Noah. And he says this, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine longsuffering, referring to God, waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Now, in Peter it says that Jesus, that God in his divine longsuffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now, let me ask this question to you. What was God waiting for? For For the people to repent. Exactly. But he waited 120 years for for the people to repent. God was waiting for his people to come to the place or or come to themselves and ponder the direction of their lives hoping that they'll turn back and turn back to him. That was what God was waiting for. And um, it was God's idea to allow people the opportunity to change. That's the reason why he withheld the judgment all those years. That's because God does not want his people to perish. He wanted to see them saved. He wanted to see them rescued. You can say that repentance is God's gift to the entire world. That's why the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Repentance is a privilege and a gift from God. Now, Repentance is also important because it's part of the Christian life. For the Christian, repentance is an ongoing lifestyle and an ongoing frame of mind because overcoming sin is a long-lasting effort. It's a lifetime effort. Repentance is not a one-shot deal because understand that God knows that life happens. He understands that. Look at what 1 John chapter 2 says in verse 1. He says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, we find out why John wrote this letter. And the purpose of this letter is so that people will not sin. But yet he said, but if anyone sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Let's say that you accidentally spilled coffee on your shirt. And we know that coffee stains, right? So if you spill coffee on your shirt and it wasn't intentional, 
but you did it and it produced a stain. What if you deliberately spill coffee on your shirt? It will produce a stain. If you spill coffee accidentally, it produces a stain. But either way, you still produce a stain and it still needs to be cleaned. Now, what you didn't do was take off your shirt and dip it in coffee. Now, the point here is this. Don't think that just because you have detergent at home that you can dip your life in sin. Don't think that just because you have a washing machine and a dryer that you can go out and get as dirty as you can. Understand God recognizes that there will be times when we spill coffee and get stained. He knows that life does happen. He knows and recognizes that there will be times where we'll get sloppy or that we're going to get careless and something might go wrong. But what God wants us to know and what John was trying to say in his letter is that there is a way to be cleansed if we sin. There is a holy detergent that will cleanse us. There is confession. That's why confession is so important in 1 John, in 1 John 1, 9. When he says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. David understood this in Psalm 51 and verse 2 when he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from all my sin. He knew that there was a way for his sins to be washed. But let's not get the attitude that just because we have detergent at home that we can continue dipping our lives in sin and get dirty as much as we can and as much as we want. We shouldn't abuse the privilege and the gift that God provides us with repentance and confession. But understand that the point to confession is simply this, is to confess your sins when you need to because we know life happens. But do not engage in sin or as much sin as you want or as much sin as you can because God made it possible for us to repent and confess our sins. See, that's where the attitude, so many people have that same attitude because God is gracious and because God allows us the opportunity to repent that we can just continue on sinning and abusing the privilege that God provides us with the gift of repentance. That's why we need to make repentance a lifestyle. But it's not a license to sin. Now, in 1 John 2, uh, chapter 2 and verse 1, John says that if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Now, an advocate is someone who represents someone. Someone who is called to be a mediator or someone who supports someone. It also means to be a defense or defend somebody. All right. So Jesus is called our advocate. So he is our mediator and he is our defense attorney, if you will. So when believers sin and they come to God to ask for forgiveness, we have an advocate, a mediator, a representative to plead our case. Now, I want you to stay with me. Here's the advantage that this advocate, this defense attorney that we've been assigned to, who is Jesus, 
He not only paid the penalty for our sin, but he's also the judge's son. So we have a great advantage when we stand before the Father, when we, ask, when we come with him to our sins, when we confess our sins to him and ask for forgiveness. We have an advantage. We have someone who would plead our case. Now, again, I'm, I'm trying very hard not to get ahead of myself. So when Jesus Christ, after we sin and we go to the Father to ask for forgiveness and confess our sins, and we go to the Father our defense attorney, which is Jesus, he'll stand there and he'll be our defense. He'll defend us and he'll represent us and he'll plead our case. Now, he will not falsely claim that we're innocent before the judge, but he will maintain that we are guilty of sin. But he will quickly point to the, to the judge or to the father that he has already paid the price. And once he does that, then our sins have been acquitted. We've been forgiven and we've been counted as innocent and not guilty. That is just such a powerful thing. If we sin, we have a defense attorney that will plead our case. And the defense attorney can do that because he's already become the sacrifice for our sins. He took our sins and he nailed it to the cross so that we don't have to pay the penalty. But he did it for us. And so he can stand before the judge and plead our case and stand as our mediator. And we can be claimed as innocent because of his forgiveness and because of his grace and because of who Jesus, what Jesus did. Uh, I mean, listen, if you're not getting excited, I am. So I'll just get excited all by myself. So the person that's been appointed as our advocate and our defense attorney has a very strong case every time we go to the Father. And we'll always come out a winner. That's, that's just a wonderful thing. So even though Christ's death is sufficient for everyone who have sinned, and everyone, to, and everyone who's ever lived and will live, it is only effective when you confess your sin, when you repent of your sin, when you accept the sacrifice and then embrace the Lord Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, that's when it becomes effective. So, let's talk about the nature of repentance. Go to Romans chapter 2 and look at verse 4. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, Paul says this. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? So Paul talks about three characteristics of God. His goodness, his forbearance, and his longsuffering. And he says it's his goodness that leads us to repentance. It's his goodness that gives us another chance to repent. Again, remember the days of Noah and, and, and realizing how many years God gave them to repent. And what's unfortunate is that not no one took the opportunity to change. And they all were wiped away. The only ones were Noah and his family. Now, that's a sad case. That's why it's important that if we sin, don't continue in that sin. Don't continue and let it linger. 
Don't go days, weeks, and months without turning around and turning back to God. But quickly and without delay, repent, confess, and get back on the right road. But in the beginning, he says, do you despise the riches of his goodness? How does one despise? How does one underestimate? How does one take for granted the goodness of God? One of the ways that people abuse and take advantage of or take for granted the, uh, the, the goodness of God is people who assume that God does not intend to punish sin. They can continue to do it safely without any regard to their spiritual welfare. These are people who, instead of turning from their sinful ways, they're continuing in their sin as though they were safe. Very dangerous place to be. Look at what the book of Ecclesiastes says in chapter 8 and verse 11. Solomon writes this, he says, Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily before the heart of the sons of men, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Let me read that to you from the, from the New Living Translation. It says, when a crime is not punished quickly, people feel it's safe to do wrong. Now, Solomon here gives us the, the, the principal reason for men continuing in their sin and evil. Solomon's saying that since punishment aren't carried out immediately, then men are in danger of continuing in that evil. And that's why so many people abuse the, the goodness of God, thinking that God is not going to punish the sin that they're committing. How many times have we seen, how many times have we seen uh, an injustice done? How many of us have seen a wrong being done to others and nothing's been done? Now, understand that when somebody is doing wrong, eventually there are going to be some consequences, right? You know, if you continue to play with fire, eventually you're going to get burnt. But when it comes to eternal matters, God's goodness always allows us time and, 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 and opportunity to change. Because God is, is, he is interested in your welfare. He cares about your spiritual welfare. He doesn't want us to be eternally lost which is why the goodness of God always leads us to repentance. But look at what 2 Peter 3, 9 says. The Lord is not slack or slow concerning his promise, as some count slackness or slowness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but they all should come to repentance. Now, the promise that Peter was talking about was the promise of judgment to come. That God will one day come bringing judgment to the world. Paul mentions that in Romans 2.5 when he says that there will be anger or God's wrath that is coming. And that God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So judgment is coming. But Paul says, I mean, but Peter says, people considered God being slow to act and to bring judgment because of the injustice and the evil that's going on in this world even today. And we wonder, Lord, why is all this happening? Why is this continuing? Why are you letting this go on? God is not being slow in fulfilling his promise. He's demonstrating his goodness. 
his forbearance and his long-suffering because he doesn't want people to perish. Just like in the days of Noah when he gave them 120 years to change and they did not change. God is simply being exceedingly patient because he cares about us. He's given us a chance for us to turn around and get our lives back in order. If you go back to Romans 2 and verse 4, I'm coming to a close here. Where he says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? We talked about his goodness, but now he mentions two other characteristics, forbearance and long-suffering. The word forbearance means to hold in or to restrain oneself. Forbearance is God not acting quickly with punishment, but he's restraining himself. You know, it's like God is not waiting there with a paddle, waiting to pounce and ready to whoop us the moment we sin. Forbearance is that God is not acting quickly, but he's restraining himself and he's holding it in. The other part or the other character is long-suffering, which means patient endurance, which describes God's slowness to anger. When someone does something foolish, like, for instance, you probably can identify with this, but when somebody cuts in front of us and we got to slam our brakes, how many of you patiently looks at the person and says, have a great day? All right, so we got one. Well, most of us, we don't. We become angry. We're quick to get angry. And sometimes even say, use some choice words. I hope not, but, but God is long-suffering, and he restrains himself, and he's slow to anger because, again, he's given us an opportunity to get ourselves right. It's all part of God's goodness. The design of God's goodness is to influence us to repent of our sins so that we won't fall deep into our sinful life. God's goodness towards us is to prevent us from being spiritually destroyed and eternally lost. And love is the reason why God delays the destruction of the world. Did you hear that? Love is the reason that God delays the destruction of this world. God doesn't want to destroy, uh, God wants to destroy sin, but not sinners. He wants sinners to repent, not to perish. So repentance was made available to all for the sole purpose that no one should perish. I like what Mark Driscoll said. He said this, God hasn't held off lighting the match for eternal fire because he finds our sins tolerable, but rather because he is patient in giving sinners an opportunity for repentance before the burning begins. And that is so true. God is restraining himself because of his goodness, because of his long-suffering, and because of his forbearance. Because he doesn't want to see sinners fall. He doesn't want to see sinners uh, be punished eternally. He doesn't want to see them lost. He wants to save them, not punish them. 
Repentance always followed by forgiveness of sin. Go to Isaiah chapter 55. Look at verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, again repentance, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Because God is slow to anger and quick to forgive, we stand a much greater chance and a greater opportunity for forgiveness and restoration whenever we repent of our sins because we serve a good God. God also restores right relationship when we repent. Nothing brings God more joy than his child coming back to him. If you remember the story of the prodigal son, if you go back there in Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 20, where the son made a decision, a commitment to act, to come back to the father. In verse 20 says, And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put on the ring on his hands and sandals on his feet, which is a representation of restoration. So the father greeted him with much affection and full acceptance as if he did nothing wrong. Nothing here was mentioned about the foolish decision about taking his inheritance. Nothing was mentioned about how he squandered his inheritance. Nothing was mentioned about the lifestyle that he chose and how he ended up destitute and in poverty and homeless. None of that was mentioned. His father simply embraced him, welcomed him, and didn't even discuss what he had done. He was just so happy to see his son come back. He was just so elated that he was willing to restore his son back. Even though the son felt unworthy to be restored back as his son, but was willing to be a servant. But the father says, no, you're going to come back and take the same place that you was before you left. The the father was so happy to see his son return from home. Repentance restores us to our rightful place as his son and his daughter. So even though we've messed up, and even though we have messed up badly, when we return to him, imagine him, picture him welcoming you, happy, elated, and not even mention the mistakes or the decisions that we've made. That's why I love this God. Because he'll never throw our mistakes to our faces. He forgives, he forgets, and he embraces us and welcomes, accepts us fully and welcomes us back. He restores us as his son and daughter. And finally, repentance brings great joy. We saw how it brought great joy to the father when his son came back. Look at uh, uh, Luke 15 while you're still there. Look at verse 23. The father was so happy to see his son come back that he threw a big party. He said in verse 33, bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. In other words, let's, let's party. So the father, he calls for this huge party because why? He was happy to see his son. He had a very good reason to celebrate. His son was back. His son was home. Look at verse 24. For this is my son 
who was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Well, I love that. The father was elated to a party, the best party ever, killed the best calf, had a roast steak and everything else and all these wonderful things, but he had a good reason. His son came home. Didn't matter what he did and why he did it. It just matters that he's finally home. That's how God feels about us when we come back and when we repent of our sins and we turn back to him. And we fully repent with all our hearts because our heart is broken because we sinned against God. We disappointed God. And we want to get our lives back together. We want to come back to God. And we can do that. And we should never be afraid. Some people are so afraid to come back because they consider their sin so bad that they don't believe that God can forgive them. But God can forgive any sin. And God will welcome you. He will forgive you. And he will restore you. But the joy and celebration doesn't, end and doesn't begin and end there. Because when we repent, it also triggers an angelic celebration in heaven. Look at, chapter, look at Luke chapter 15 while you're still there. And look at verse 4. We read the parable of the lost sheep. Jesus says in verse 4, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. Then in verse 5 it says, And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Verse 6, And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. I have found my sheep which was lost. Now the word rejoice with me literally means to celebrate with me. And so... Jesus is the shepherd. This is a similar celebration that the father had with the prodigal son. His son was finally found. He came home and he said, celebrate with me and let's have a party because my son is home. God is doing the same thing, but he's not doing it alone. He's doing it with the angelic host. The entire heavenly host erupts with celebration over one person who repents. That shows the value of that one individual who turns back to God. That one person is worth time to celebrate and rejoice. Because see, if you look at it from the angelic being, from from their perspective and from God's perspective, they're rejoicing because we not only were found because we repented and they've come back, but we've come back and we are now no longer Uh, in danger of being eternally lost. We were once lost, but we found our way back, and now we're found. That is what the celebration is all about. My son is found. He's not going to be eternally lost. He's back with us. He's back home where he belongs. Luke uh, chapter 15 and verse 7, it says this, I say to you that likewise... There will be more joy in heaven over one sin who repents than over the 99, the just person, who don't need to, be, to, uh, to repent. And again, that's just a beautiful, beautiful parable showing us how gracious God is and, and how elated he is when we finally repent. And you know, knowing this, knowing that 
our repentance triggers a great celebration in heaven, that should want us to repent on a regular basis. That should want us to come to a place that when we fall, we're not going to linger there and, and sit in our self-pity. Well, we want to get ourselves up like the prodigal son did. We want to come to ourselves, ponder our direction, realize that we've done wrong, and then get back in the next exit, get back with God, and then celebrate with him. Hallelujah. It will be a great eruption and rejoicing of celebration in heaven because of us. Because of even if it's one person who repents. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the joy of knowing, Lord God, that you are a God that is very receptive, that is loving, that is kind, that is long-suffering, who is forbearing. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Father God, for the many opportunities that you give us to get back in right relationship with you. We know, Father, that it is your love, love and desire to want to have a relationship with us. But whenever we sever our relationship from you because of our sin, Lord, we know that it grieves you. But, Father, we know that it should also grieve us. But, Lord, we thank you for opening the door to, for us to come boldly and reunite and be restored back to right relationship with you. We thank you, Father, for the, for the gift of repentance. We thank you for the privilege of giving us that opportunity. And, Lord, for this we thank you. We pray, Father God, for those that are here tonight and those who are watching. Father, if you're calling them to repent, in whatever put distance between them and you, Father, we pray that they'll make the decision to come back and return back to you. And, Lord, we know that when they do that, not only will you be happy, not only will you rejoice, but the whole heavenly host will erupt with great celebration and rejoicing. And so, Father, for this we thank you. We give you all the glory and the praise and the honor for you and who you are and what you stand for. And most important of all, Lord, for your grace and mercy and love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen. and amen. Thank you all. Oh, sorry. <laughs>